This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. We have seen a remarkable effort to develop vaccines to help immunize the population against COVID-19. There are several vaccines approved for use in Canada, each with different underlying scientific principles. And as each new vaccine makes headlines, there is mounting confusion about what sets each one apart. As Canada continues with its vaccine rollout, there are questions about who gets the jab first and who is in greatest need. Many advocates have said that people with disabilities, especially developmental disabilities, should have been prioritized in the vaccine rollout. It's an important consideration. It does matter who gets prioritized in the vaccine rollout and what that prioritization indicates. Today, we discuss coronavirus vaccines. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Chuita Gupta. I'm the host of the program and we've got a lot to get to today. In the second half of the program, you'll be hearing from a disability advocate, Nico Pupella, who is the president of the Self-Advocates Council for Community Living Ontario, about some of the concerns he's heard from members of the disability community. But first, joining me now from Halifax is Scott Halperin, who is an infectious disease specialist and the director for the Canadian Center for Vaccinology. Scott is here to talk a little bit about the different vaccines and how they might be different from one another and whether the vaccines are holding up against all the variants. Scott Halperin, welcome to The Pulse. My pleasure to be here. So we've heard so much about the different vaccines that have been approved. Uh, There's the Moderna and Pfizer. Those have been around a bit longer. And then the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the Novavax vaccine. What's the difference between the different types of vaccines that people can now now make use of or can now get? Sure. I mean, they're they're over, last estimate from the World Health Organization, there are over 250 vaccines that are in various stages of of (coughs) development. Uh, for COVID-19. So there are a lot of vaccines out there, but they're all can be categorized into probably about six platforms. And the ones that are currently uh, approved or soon to be approved are in three platforms. One are the mRNA vaccines, uh, which are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. The others are the um, uh, viral vector vaccines, uh, which are in this case, adenovirus vector vaccines, and that's the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine and the Janssen vaccine. And the third one is the Novavax, which is a purified protein vaccine. Um, so those are the three platforms. They all are using what's called the spike protein, and that's a very important protein on the surface of the virus. It's the way the virus gets into cells. Uh, so that's how it can cause infection. So if you make antibodies against that spike protein, you can prevent the virus from attaching to the cells and therefore prevent infection. <clears throat> and the only the difference between the vaccines is how the each of those vaccines gets the spike protein uh, to the immune system so that the immune system can make an antibody response against it. So as I understand it, there is a bit of a distinction between these vaccines in that some of them require two doses 
and others require a single dose. What can you tell us about that? So the um, Janssen vaccine is a, uh, or Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the same company, is a single dose uh, vaccine. And that's one that <clears throat> uses an adenovirus, a common cold uh, adenovirus, to deliver that spike protein to the cells. And then you make an antibody response against that. Uh, so that's, that's uh, uh, and they uh, use a single dose of the vaccine. And that single dose was shown to be just around 70% uh, effective. Uh, so a very nicely effective vaccine. <clears throat> the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are uh, mRNA vaccines, and they deliver the, the RNA or the, or the message, uh, the nuclear message, of how to create this spike protein. So it creates that message. Uh, the cell takes up that message and makes the spike protein itself. So the cell in your body, takes, uh, where, where the injection is done, takes up that uh, mRNA and makes the, uh, and then your own body makes that spike protein, uh, and then your immune system responds to it. Those those two vaccines were <clears throat> studied in a two dose regimen, one at, at, with an interval of three weeks and one with an interval of four weeks. And we know that even with a single dose. Those vaccines are quite effective, um, and with two doses, they're very highly effective. So over 95% effective. So, uh, uh, but even with the first dose, uh, they uh, have efficacy well above 80%, um, and therefore uh, a number of the provinces and territories now are, are delaying the second dose uh, in order to make sure that as many people as possible get the first dose first and get some protection, and then they, then they'll. Uh, give the second dose at a later time. Hmm. When you hear all these numbers, uh, you know some are, some of these vaccines are said to be about ninety five percent effective. Others, like the Johnson and Johnson, you said seventy percent effective. I mean, people must be thinking, well, I'd like to get the best one. How do you actually talk about effectiveness in a way that we don't necessarily set up one vaccine against the other? That's a very good question, and uh, people have to have the context of that. The vaccines are saying, oh, they're not as effective. They're only 70% effective or 67% effective. Those are highly effective vaccines. Uh, for example, the flu vaccine that we get every year, if we could guarantee that it was going to be 67 or 70% effective every year, we would be just very happy uh, because sometimes the flu vaccine is only 40 or 50% some years if there's not a good match, sometimes even lower. Uh, so, Having any efficacy, having an efficacy of 65 to 70%, that, that's really great. The, having an efficacy of 95%, that's almost unheard of. So that's, that's really great. But, you know, what we are encouraging everybody, as soon as you get offered a vaccine, take that vaccine. They're all good vaccines. They're all going to provide far more uh, protection than not having a vaccine. And most importantly, all those vaccines have been over 90 or some in some cases 100 percent effective against severe disease and death and well we want to prevent all infection if we can what we really want to make sure is that nobody's dying from COVID-19 and all of the vaccines that have been released um, do an incredibly uh, good job at preventing death. Let me just flip the conversation a little bit because we've seen a lot of headlines recently about AstraZeneca in particular and uh, blood clots and other side effects that I think are making people a bit nervous. How concerned should someone getting vaccinated be about potential side effects? I'm thinking blood clots, rashes, maybe allergic reactions. Yeah, so 
uh, it's important for everyone to realize that there is no vaccine that doesn't have some side effects. And every every vaccine that we've ever had has some side effects, uh, which are more frequent and mild. And uh, there is a risk of severe side effects in every vaccine. So um, every vaccine, all the vaccines we've routinely been using for decades, all can have a rate of uh, of severe allergy, what's called anaphylaxis, in some small number of cases. Uh, typically, for most vaccines, it's you know one in a million doses. Um, and you say, well, but gee, that's very very rare, and it is. Uh, but if you're giving out 300 million doses around the world, or six billion doses eventually, that's going to be a lot of people who have that uh, side effect. Proportionally, it's low, but the numbers can be large. And that's why all vaccines are given uh, in a situation where there are uh, there is the ability to reverse those uh, allergic reactions and with that um, prevent, you know, severe outcome from an allergic reaction. Because allergic reactions, if they happen, anaphylaxis can be reversed with medication as long as you have the equipment there to do that. Um, uh, and we don't want anybody to have a, you know, a fatal side effect. The vaccines are given under situations where that can be controlled. Things like when we first hear of a, a potential side effect like blood clots, one has to uh, look and say, we need to explore it. We can't say, no, that's, that doesn't exist. We, but we don't know yet whether it's caused by the vaccine. Um, because for any of these side effects, <clears throat> there is a background rate of things that happen. So, um, you know, on any given day, uh, there will be, you know, some proportion of people will have blood clots uh, or just just by being, you know, and uh, people will have strokes, people will have uh, uh, bleeds. All of these things can happen. <clears throat> and what we have to see is, is the rate of that happening in people who got vaccinated higher than that background rate? And that's what's being looked at now with the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, as you're aware, um, uh, a number of the vaccines um, during the clinical trials, they, uh, there were pauses because of safety concerns, because something happened, uh, whether there was a central nervous system problem or uh, a neurologic abnormality. And what was looked at was, was this due to the vaccine or not? And with all the vaccines, it was determined that, no, that was just background side effects that occurred that were unrelated to the vaccine, and those clinical trials continued. Now we're using the vaccine in far more people um, because they have been you know, authorized under these emergency authorizations. So we're going to see more of these uh, potential side effects, and we have to go through a process of looking at and seeing, is that occurring more, more frequently uh, than is occurring uh, every day, even without the vaccine. And until we know that, um, we are, need to be cautious and monitor closely. And there's a lot of uh, very careful surveillance taking place for safety with all of these vaccines as they're rolled out, uh, both here in Canada and around the world. So basically, you know, we don't know that these blood clots are caused by the AstraZeneca vaccine, but it's not something we're ignoring. We're taking it very seriously and trying to determine, is this causative or not? Hmm. I'm just going to go back to that point about uh, vaccine effectiveness and efficacy. So much talk about variants right now. 
how effective are these vaccines that we're talking about today when we compare them to um, some of the variants that we've heard about? There's the UK variant, there's variants out of uh, Brazil, so many of them. So how are these vaccines holding up? So far, um, the information we have is is they're holding up pretty well. Um, and obviously, we can't compare we can't compare them the same way where we can say, oh, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine in the clinical trials were 95 percent effective. And against the variants, they're X percent. We don't have that information because we aren't doing the studies in the same way where half the people are getting placebo and half the people are getting vaccine and then comparing the uh, incidence of infection in both of those groups. So we're doing a number of things in order to look at how the vaccines are comparing in uh, against the variants. One is to take those variants, grow them in the laboratory, and then look at the antibody uh, in people who've been immunized to see whether their their blood can neutralize that antibody those that those variants as well as they neutralize the original virus. And so far, using those in vitro or in the in the test tube tests. The vaccines are holding up pretty well. We do know that there is some loss in efficacy from some of the later clinical trials where those variants um, were already starting to emerge. So when Pfizer and Moderna did their efficacy studies, those variants didn't exist. When Janssen and AstraZeneca did their, uh, by the time they reported their efficacy, those some of those variants were already emerging. And um, the, the different vaccines have decreased, uh, but still efficacy uh, against those variants. But that's something we're going to have to monitor very carefully uh, and look at the, you know, how the vaccines continue to perform in the field, in the real world, um, as they're rolled out. And hopefully what we do is we get enough population protection soon where the emergence of variants will start to diminish because once we get to the point where there's good uh, herd immunity, community immunity, where most people are protected, uh, then it's very, the, the emergence of variants is likely going to be lower just because they're less susceptible uh, people in the population. One thing that we've heard from members of the disability community, especially people uh, who advocate on behalf of those living with developmental disabilities, is that that population should have been given priority in the vaccine rollout um, and you know, at par with seniors or those living in congregate settings. What are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, it's, it's, there are two risk, major risk factors. Um, one is extremely high exposure to the virus, uh, and the other is age, um, and the other is high density uh, living conditions. And certainly in long-term, uh, the, the prioritization has been in long-term care facilities for two reasons. One, because of age, um, but also because of that congregate close living. So in a number of provinces, the residents of long-term care facilities are being prioritized regardless of their age, uh, with the seniors being a higher priority, but everyone in those uh, facilities being prioritized. In the community, um, the the risk is most likely more related to age and other exposure. Um, So I think in that case, uh, the provinces and territories are prioritizing people much more according to age. But again, the prioritization is, is each province has done its own prioritization and rolling out the vaccine in its own way based on uh, the logistics and, and their understanding of the risk within the community. 
Well, the question that I think everyone wants an answer to, so I'll put it to you, which vaccine should we all get? Whichever one is offered to you. <laughs> when, <laughs> Thank when you your, very much. When your name comes up and they say they want you, or vaccine is ready for you, say, I'll be there. And just write down what vaccine you got, but don't try to make a decision based on which one. Just get vaccinated. We heard from Dr. Scott Halprin, who is an infectious disease specialist and the director for the Canadian Centre on Vaccinology. Scott Halpern says that Canadians should try and get whichever vaccine they can get their hands on. Well, it seems like a good idea, but what about people with disabilities? How accessible is the process to get hold of a vaccine? How early in the process have people with disabilities been immunized? Should we have gotten to them first? These are all important and pressing questions, and to try and help make sense of some of it, I'm joined by Nico Pukela, who is the president of the Self-Advocates Council for Community Living Ontario. He's an expert. Nico, welcome to The Pulse. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes out of your day to talk to us today. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this. So tell me a little bit about what you're hearing from the disability community about the vaccine rollout. Are people generally happy with how things are going? So far, I've been hearing mixed feedback. A lot of people are happy that it's coming out. There are people that are concerned about what phase they're going to fall under um, because a lot of it is based on age groups right now. And some of it's based on whether you're in a cognitive living situation like a group home or if you're like myself, which is part of a supported independent living program. So people that live on their own that still receive supports. Um, so it's there's a lot of mixed feedback, but a lot of people that I've spoken to are happy that they're seeing the rollout happening. Some would like to see it happen a little quicker, but they understand that the doses come in so many that you have to constantly call, see, hey, is there any available vaccines? Can we get an appointment booked? How is that process working out for people with disabilities? Because there's a there is a lot of pressure on people to keep making phone calls to see if the vaccine is is available, um, if they can come in today and book an appointment. There's online portals. Do you know if those uh, if the infrastructure is accessible for people with disabilities? Some I've talked to have been having real struggles with it because not all of it is available in an easy to use format. Um, it, there are challenges when. People are calling in and being told, oh, no, you have to go through this process. So it's having that streamlined communication where people are on the same page of how the process is supposed to work. Because not everybody has access to a computer, so they have to rely on others to assist them. Um, you know, earlier in the pandemic, I spoke to a lot of people with disabilities and advocates who said that they were pretty nervous about going into a hospital. They were worried about... Uh, ableism, being denied ventilators, not being taken adequate care of during the pandemic. Do you feel that some of those same concerns have made an appearance during the vaccine rollout as well? I have seen some of that. And I also am part of a vaccine discussion panel group, part of Community Living and other organization members. So we're trying to help hopefully streamline the process of educating everybody on what the process is going to look like, um, maybe give an example of what it would look like of someone actually going in to receive the vaccine as we were shown a video in our group of an instance, I think, in the UK of how it was done. 
So it's things like that. We're just trying to make it streamlined and easy for everybody to understand the information, be supportive in any way that we can, educate people. You know, um, I think back to about a year ago when we were all first dealing with COVID-19. I had a guest on the program who said that her clients, uh, many of whom had developmental disabilities, were really at a disadvantage in that in those early days. Because a lot of the information about COVID-19 and how to stay safe was designed for an audience that was able-bodied. And so her clients, many of whom were dealing with developmental disabilities, were really left behind and forgotten about. Do you feel that that concern about information not being made available is still a concern that you're dealing with in the community? Do you feel that the developmental disability community should have actually been given priority in vaccines? What are your thoughts? Oh, I agree fully. Like people who are in the developmental disability sector um, or the people that are of the older age group definitely need to be a priority. I I understand that frontline workers are obviously number one because they're the ones that are helping deal with this thing. But then developmental people uh, should not be left out, um, as you said, because they feel like they're going to be pushed to the bottom of the list and might not receive it. So months later... And we had a, we were dealing with a, um, we received feedback from a place in Markham, I believe it was Participation House, and they had a lot of cases come into their place, and they just recently were um, receiving the vaccination ahead of the next um, tier level of the, of the vaccination rollout, and that was because of what was going on with their location. And mm-hmm. to me, it made me feel good that, I mean, I understand that not everybody agreed with them receiving it before others, but given the circumstances that they were faced with, not just with their staff, but the people they were supporting in it, I honestly would, like felt glad that they were getting that, um, getting that rolled out to them sooner as opposed to later. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, shows positive feedback from the government saying, hey, we recognize that you're dealing with something. Let's help you out. And if we can mm-hmm. see more of that, and the more open communication with that, then things will go a lot smoother than what is going on through not just locally or provincially, but around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you brought up the government, so I'm going to go there. Uh, you know <laughs> that the vaccine rollout is a provincial uh, issue and the provinces are handling it, but it is the federal government that's placing these, that's ordering the doses and making the agreements with manufacturers. So it's not like the federal government is out of the picture, far from it. Um, the issues that you've described for the disability community, those issues are the same whether you live in Halifax or Vancouver or out in Toronto. Do you think that the federal government had a role to step in, especially with the Accessible Canada Act that everyone's talking about? Do you think they had a role to step in and maybe mandate some best practices for dealing with people with disabilities or even having a conversation with provincial health ministries and saying, hey, you really need to make sure that people with disabilities are taken care of or at the very least not forgotten? What do you think? Oh, I fully agree. And it's not only just for like the vaccine rollouts. There's been a lot of people in the in the uh, in the community that are struggling when they're trying to deal with the medical appointments and being denied having a caretaker person with them who's trying to help them with their appointment or speak for them when they're having struggles. So we've been dealing with issues right now on our council group that I'm part of to say, hey, like we need to be able to have someone with us that can support us when we're having struggles. So we recently found out that as long as when someone's booking the appointment, if their care provider, the person that's helping them, 
um, gets put on with their appointment, then they will be able to go in with them. But if they mm-hmm. don't, then they're being denied at the door. And to me personally, I understand it from two sides. One, obviously, with limiting the contact. But secondly, I see it as a negative because they're being denied that person to go with them when they need that support. And did the federal government or the provincial government or even a municipal government, did anyone ever talk to people with disabilities to see what they wanted uh, out of the rollout? We have received very little feedback, and this has been an ongoing basis. And when we do get feedback, we work with them and we get that feedback, so it helps communicate things better. But when we're not being listened to, it's a real struggle. If you had the year of government right now, any level of government, what would you want to tell them? What is it that people with disabilities need from all three levels of government to make sure that the vaccine rollout goes smoothly for them? I think from my perspective, as I would see it as a way of saying to them that, hey, we, we, we have voices, we need to be heard, we need to be respected, and we need to be included in getting this done sooner as opposed to later because a lot of people as myself, we really need to make sure that we're being heard. And it's very difficult when we're being pushed to the bottom of the list on a lot of things. And it's a struggle. And I, I'll say that a lot because it is. Um, like we make, we want to make sure that everybody's being treated equally, being heard, and that we're working together to reach a common end goal of this. Exactly. I mean, if we all don't get vaccinated, then we're not going to get ahead of COVID-19. Nico, thank you very much for being on the program today. Just, it was a pleasure. I had one other thing, if I could, and yes. it's just relating to the, the if you get vaccinated or not. People have concerns that we're hearing is that if they don't get vaccinated, they'll be denied access to certain things. But if you don't want to get vaccinated, what are the consequences of it? And will you be penalized? And these are kind of questions that we see regularly and hear regularly. We just want to make sure people are aware that, you know what, if you don't get the vaccine, what's going to happen? Will you be denied access to things uh, or whatever the case might be? Like, it's that understanding of what the pros and cons of it are. That's a really good point, Nico. And I'm glad you brought it up, actually. But we do have to wrap it up now. It was a real pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. And I appreciate being on your uh, program today. That was Nico Pupella, who is the president of the Self-Advocates Council for Community Living Ontario. He joined us today from Uxbridge. Um, If you missed any of my conversation with Nico or before that with Scott Halperin, you are welcome to check out the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank both Scott Halperin and Nico Pupella for being guests on the program today. The technical producer for the pulse is Nisreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.